an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. Before we get back into the book of 1 Timothy, I wanted to give away another Advent devotional. Advent begins next Sunday, and so I would encourage you to have something um, planned, organized, and this may be a good option for you. It's called The Christmas We Didn't Expect, Daily Devotions for Advent by David Mathis, but there's many other good resources out there for Advent as well. And so if your bulletin, look at the back of your bulletin, if you have it there, um, if you have a one on the back circled, uh, raise your hand or come on up here and grab your book. Uh, number one, I see somebody with it back there. You got it? No, I thought, okay. Oh, come on up. Come on up, Brighton. How you, do, how you doing today, man? Give him a hand. The pep talk. Think about it for a second. Uh, if you've played sports, maybe you've had a teacher, a certain coach, even your parent or a boss along the way who's rallied the troops, who gave that pep talk to get you going, excited about what was coming up or that big game or that big moment. And those things are powerful. They can have a real effect on you. They can instill courage in you. They can inspire you. They can actually make a real difference in a situation, even in, in a battle, in a war. And I was thinking about some of the, my favorite pep talks along the way, and there were quite a few, and I just want to share a couple with you. I was a fan of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I enjoyed watching those in Aragorn and the uh, Return of the King. He said this uh, before the big battle. He said, A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. This day we fight. I bid you stand, men of the West. And they have the music playing in the background. You know, he's giving the rousing speech as he's on the horse in front of his troops. And you just can't help but just to, like, feel inspired by that. And we know that, you know, Hollywood and movies, those things are, are you know, they're real unrealistic a lot of times. And you don't know whether there's, uh, you know, is this really, really possible to inspire people in this much uh, way, in this much passion. Well, one of my other favorite ones comes from real life. 
and it's not just Hollywood. It was when George W. Bush was at ground zero following 9-11. And you may remember the scenes, uh, some of you, when he had the bullhorn, he was standing on top of the rubble, and he was talking. And what made this speech so great wasn't really the speech itself, but go back and listen to it if you don't remember it. He's talking in the bullhorn, and somebody in a, a nice uh, New York accent, they say, George, we can't hear you. And he takes, uh, turns to that guy, and he says, I can hear you. And he says, the rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock down these buildings are going to hear from all of us very soon. And, I mean, you just got a chance of USA, USA, and this big crowd cheering and, and uh, really, really getting excited. And we know what happened after that. So pep talks have a real effect on people. And what we have today, essentially, in our text is Paul giving Timothy a pep talk about his situation. And he's laid out lots of instructions, lots of details, and he's going to continue to do so. But in this passage today, he really works to inspire Timothy himself to turn inward, look at himself, look at his character, and see what he's doing as far as leading this group of people at Ephesus. Because there's so much more at stake for Timothy than just a football game or even a battle. What's at stake for Timothy is, is literally the souls of men and women in the church at Ephesus and their eternal destiny. And Paul even warns Timothy of the necessary necessity to persevere in his holiness, in his teaching, to bring about final salvation. So let's look at 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 through 16. Paul writes to Timothy, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress." Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. We'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you for this book of 1 Timothy and just so many incredible instructions that we find how to operate and run a church the way that you want it to be done. And God, forgive us for making it about us so much of the time, how that we want the temperature just right, our seats just right, the music just right, the preaching just right, and we turn everything ultimately about our opinions and our feelings. And God, it's all about Jesus. And help us to remember that today. And as we look at this incredible passage of Scripture, help us to see that we can't pass on what we don't first possess. And those here are struggling in their homes, those who are struggling in their relationships, are really shining a light for you, Jesus. I pray that you'll help them today to be inspired and motivated to run after you with all their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in verse 11, Paul writes to Timothy, command and teach these things. All of this that he's been giving to Timothy, he now says, I need you to step up to the plate. I need you to take authority and get this church into order. It's a mess. We've talked about it. It's in chaos. 
There's false teachers, people who were formerly, they were the leaders in this church, and now they were teaching things that were not the gospel. They were leading people astray from the main thing, and it was a subtle, subtle drift into things that would ultimately lead people to destruction and not to salvation. And Timothy is to teach these things with authority. They come from the Apostle Paul, who got them from Jesus. And so with that comes this incredible confidence, because you have the weight of Scripture. You're giving Scripture. You're giving the very words of God to people. So you don't have to, Timothy, be shy or to be hesitant about the message you're giving, because this message is the message from God, and you're the mailman. You're the one that's delivering the mail. And we know that, of course, when God tells us to speak the truth, we know from Scripture that he tells us to do so with wisdom. He says to speak the truth in love. I mean, clearly we have the responsibility to deliver the truth in a certain way. But I think so many times we take this idea of speaking the truth in love as a a, a means not to ever have conflict or not to have confrontation. But the truth is, speaking the truth in love has more to do with the fact that love and truth go hand in hand than just simply the demeanor by which we give out that truth. And so because they do fit together and they go together, that the most loving thing we can do is to speak truth. And so, for instance, if you have a relative who is not a believer, and you know that anytime you bring up Jesus, it causes conflict, do you say, well, I want to avoid conflict and not speak the truth because I love this person. No, that's ridiculous because if you truly love that person, you're going to give truth to that person. And so many times we're afraid in ministry, afraid in leadership from the fallout of speaking truth that sometimes we just shy away from it altogether. It's kind of like in church world, it's kind of like when I was a kid and I went to the court to play basketball once and uh, the guy was over there playing, a kid about my age, And we went, and a couple of my friends, me and my brother, Joe Fox, John Fox, we joined in to play some two-on-two basketball with this guy. And during the course of the game, there was a foul that was called, and he claimed that it wasn't a foul. We said it was a foul, and it began to be an argument and a dispute. And as kids, you know, 11, 10, 11 on a playground, they don't settle these things in a very wise manner, right? And tempers flared, and people got a little bit upset. And at the end of the day, the kid just says, well, I'm leaving with my ball and I'm going home. And the three of us stood there with nothing to to, to play basketball with. And that happens in the church world as well. People don't like what they hear. They don't like the truth of the gospel. They don't like the truth of scripture. And they basically say, I'm out. You know, I don't have to be given that kind of truth. I don't want that kind of truth. And we know that in our culture that you can find many, many places where they're going to say something that you like, and so it's easy to just kind of dismiss this and go and move on. That's why oftentimes we have so many people just hopping from church to church to church. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, In our day, respect for church authority has all but vanished. Many professing Christians think their private lives are no business to the church. Church discipline from a local body is hardly ever taken seriously since it rarely prevents someone from joining the church next door with no questions asked. And so the same thing is true in Timothy's world, that people would abandon the church if they didn't like what they heard, or these false teachers, when he confronted them, there would be some fallout. But he says, Timothy, you need to have confidence, you need to have authority, and the authority comes from the Word of God, from the Scriptures, from the things that I'm giving you as an apostle of Christ. And then he goes to work on Timothy himself. He's basically going to tell him, Timothy, you can't pass on what you don't possess in the first place. You can't give to somebody else 
what you yourself does, you don't have. So he says, verse 12, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And again, as we looked at when it came to church leadership a few weeks ago, when we looked at elders and deacons, God values character. He's looking for leaders with character. And that's why when we looked at those descriptions of the qualifications for elders and deacons, and as you look at these guys' names that are listed in the bulletin today, that we see that we go, as God does, and look for character qualifications, not just who's a good leader, or who's charismatic, or who can get a following. But we look for people who love Jesus, who are ministering and investing in their families first, and also have a reputable um, demeanor and reputation in the community that they work. And so Paul goes after Timothy, and he goes after this idea of character. Now, Timothy, we know, is a guy who, as this verse points out, he's young. He says, don't let anybody despise your youth. And when we think of young, we think of, you know, somebody like 17 years old or something. But chances are, Timothy was probably well into his 30s at this point. And we think, well, that's not really that young, right? Well, in that culture, you really were considered young or younger until you were about 40 years old. And so those of you who are below 40, enjoy it, right? You're young, according to biblical standards. Those of us who aren't, we're wise, right? Um, We're old. And so he says, don't let people look down on you because you're young. But Timothy wasn't just younger. Timothy was also a a person who was probably a shy person. He did not like to be assertive. He wasn't the take charge type of leader. And how do we know this? In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you're following along in the app, I put these verses so you can just tap on them and follow along. But uh, eight years earlier, Paul wrote and he said to the church at Corinth, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of God as I am. Let no one despise him. So put him at ease. Here he comes in, maybe a little hesitant. And then we also learn that Timothy, not only being young and also a little bit on the shy side, he struggled with some physical elements. He, he was struggling with his health. First Timothy 5, we'll see this later on in chapter 5, but in verse 23, he said, Paul writes and says, Don't no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent elements. So he had some health issues. And all, uh, those of you who struggle with anxiety, sounds like a little bit like that, right? It sounds a little bit like an anxious person. He's a person who maybe tends to default to worrying a lot. And a lot of times, as guys, I know that we're unwilling to admit that. And sometimes it's a little more obvious when women struggle with anxiety than it is with us as guys. But I meet with guys a lot. I spend a lot of my time time meeting with guys in Fight Club. And oftentimes, people are quick to admit to me they struggle over the anxiety of leadership, of speaking in public. But the one that I talk about a lot that people struggle the most with is taking spiritual leadership in their homes. That these guys who seem to have great charisma and great leadership skills at work, they can take charge in any kind of situation, but all of a sudden they get to their home situation in front of their wife and kids and they become a a mouse when it comes to speaking the truth and giving the truth and leading in the truth. And so there's oftentimes much anxiety over this, and the flesh kind of rises up, and it tells us, Satan tells us, you know, you're a hypocrite, or, you know, they really know what you're like, or you're going to seem stupid, or you don't know as much as other people, so how dare you step out and take a leadership role in this 
way. I was listening to a John Piper sermon a few days ago, and I really appreciated in this sermon how courageous he was when he spoke about his own personal besetting sins, the things that he struggled with. And I just want to list these for you because here's a guy at the time was into his 60s and would admit to these struggles. He said, I'm a man who must crucify the love of praise every day. I'm a man who struggles with the same adolescent fear at age 63 that I had at age 15, the fear of looking foolish. I'm a man who is prone to feel self-pity and pout when he doesn't get his way, uh, or I'm sorry, he doesn't get love the way that he wants. I'm one who is short on compassion and long on critical analysis. He says, I'm one who can freeze up emotionally when he's tired and feel instinctively that someone else is at fault in this situation. He says, I'm one who loves to praise God in the great assembly and feels a constraint nevertheless on my own spirit in my living room with my family. Why is that? He says, I'm one who has loved my wife for 40 years imperfectly and spent with her over three of those years with a Christian counselor trying to become a better image of Christ in the church. And he says, I'm one who never feels sure of his motives that they're pure. Man, I really respect that kind of authenticity, that level of just disclosure about his own personal struggles, because we all struggle with the flesh, this unredeemed humanness that's still part of us. Even though we love Jesus and we want to follow him, it's the, these remnants of the old man that rise up against us and tell us these things and work against us, as uh, Stephen mentioned today in his elder talk. And Satan wants to expose and exploit your weaknesses. He wants to discourage you that you'll quit striving for holiness in your personal life or just simply just put on a show for other people and go through the motions. And it's easy for Satan to convince you as you embrace some sin in your life that your church family isn't really that important to you, that your church attendance is optional, that reading scripture every day doesn't really matter that much. And you begin to just default to, I'm just going to embrace living the way I want to live, what feels good to me, rather than living the way that God says to. And so Paul starts in on Timothy. He says, Timothy, as the leader of this flock that is running renegade and and acting crazy, you don't have anything to give them if you yourself aren't paying attention to your own character and what's going on in yourself. Paul Tripp writes, Many more church leaders fail because they have lost the battle for their heart than because shifts in their theology or view of the gospel. And it begins in our hearts. It begins as a slow fade of just making compromises in little things like that's not that bad or that relationship, you know, isn't going to be anything. There's not going to turn anything serious. Or it could be just, you know, I don't really need to read the Bible because I know most of it. And we make these excuses and it begins to be a slow fade in our heart. And we forget what our purpose is as an ambassador for the gospel and that we start thinking that sin isn't that big a deal. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul told Timothy, God has given us the spirit of power, not of fear. 
He's not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power. And that's what he wants Timothy to step into by the power of God. And the only way that we can do that is the song that we sang earlier. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, it's in you. It's a humble admission before the throne of God constantly, daily. God, I need your grace today. I need your grace today. Because as that song we sang talks about, we begin to try to find our holiness in the things we know, the way we act, the theology that we can recite. And we base it on all these things instead of Jesus Christ. And our only hope of, of anything good in our life comes from a humble admission that grace is needed in our life. And this spiritual battle that takes place, we need God to step in and intervene. So he says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. And to counterbalance that potential to being looked down because he's young, Paul says, here's what I want you to do. Don't focus on leadership skills, focus on character, because authority is much more validated by character than by age. Authority is much more validated by character than by age. And you guys who are being nominated for offices, remember that if you find yourself on the younger end, character is what gains respect and what, it, what bring, gives you the, the, the value of authority and having authority. And he gets specific to Timothy in these areas. He says, in speech, where we, most of us get the most trouble, right, by the things that we say, James talks about this. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives, he's being deceived in his heart, and that person's religion is, is worthless. It's in vain. It's of no meaning. And so Paul starts with Timothy and says, watch your speech. Leaders, learn to listen more than you talk. Talk less, listen more. And then he says, in conduct. And this is just the day in, day out, mundane, humdrum, just flow of life. It's the way that we conduct ourselves in the office, at the gas station, in the grocery store line, wherever we are, he says, we need him to be an example in those places. And so he talks about speech and conduct, things that are observable, but then he goes to some more abstract qualities. He says, in your love, be an example in your love. And this gets to like the motivation for why he's doing what he's doing. In faith, he says, be an example in faith. This is that authenticity, that faithfulness, preaching the gospel to yourself and just reminding yourself of your need for the gospel. In faith, and he says, in purity, being a younger man probably was dealing with sexual purity with Timothy. Be pure, Timothy. And so there would be no need to remind Timothy of these things if these things weren't potential for disaster in his own life. And so we need to remember that as we start to begin to think we're better than we truly are or more righteous than we really are, that if Paul is writing these words to Timothy and warning Timothy, how much more should we be aware? Not that Timothy was something extra special more than you, but the truth is God used Timothy in an amazing way to spread the gospel. And if he can... Come to Timothy and say, Paul can say to Timothy, be careful, watch yourself, take good inventory on these things, then how much more are you susceptible as well? And so the war for the rulership of your heart still rages, and there's many times when we want to do what we shouldn't want, what we shouldn't want to do. We have trouble controlling our emotions, and we can regret things that we do or we say, and we need to be on guard for those, all of us. One other quote by Paul Tripp, 
I read a lot of Paul Tripp because I read New Morning Mercies every morning, and he wrote this. He said, don't fear your weaknesses. God supplies all the strength you need. Be afraid of those moments when you think you're independently strong. When you start to think you don't need to lean into the gospel every day. When you don't need to be praying to God every day for his grace to help you live the life. When you start to lose your fear of sin. Grace keeps you frightened by the power of what sin can do in your life. And always remember this, that sin, no matter how little you may think it is, was such a big deal that God could only deal with the situation in a just way by sending his own son to die. Think about that. That the only solution for the sin problem was God became flesh, came and lived on earth and died for us. And we need to remember the next time we're tempted to think, it's not that big a deal, or it doesn't really matter, or nobody will see me, or I can't help it, I'm a victim to my own habits. We need to remember what sin cost God. And the only solution was Jesus Christ dying. So he continues with Timothy, urging him to be the kind of person who can pass on truth. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, verse 13, to exhortation, to teaching. Again, focus on the Word. Focus on the truth. It's the same pattern that we follow here. Timothy would have read the Scriptures, which would have been the Old Testament Scriptures primarily, also stories of Jesus and the Gospel that had been passed on by oral tradition and Paul's letters that were circulating. And he would take these and he would read these letters then he would exhort, meaning encourage the believer through these words, and then he would teach. He would, what we call expository preaching. He would go line by line, verse by verse, and instruct people, exhort people, out of the passage of scriptures they had just read. And that's why we do this. That's why we go verse by verse. That's why I don't jump around 50 passages of scripture each Sunday and, and try to make my point on why this is not the case or this should be the case. Because there's much more leeway and potential for, for error when a pastor does that because he can begin to cherry pick what he wants to say and how he wants to say it. When we take the verses and we just go down the line, we begin to be able to speak the thoughts of what the author had intended, Paul had intended to be said, and the way that he intended it to be said. And so Timothy here, he's, he's saying, preach the word, exhort from the word teach the word. And then verse 14, Paul tries to inspire him and, and, and allow him to step up in the confidence that it's not about him. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So Timothy, here he is. He's questioning his calling. He's questioning his ability. He's questioning his age. He's not an authoritative guy. He doesn't take charge very well. He's sickly. He may be struggling with anxiety. And Paul says, look, Timothy, look what God did supernaturally. It wasn't an accident that I sent you to the church there, that I have you staying there to lead, because God did something in your life. He gave you the ability, supernaturally, the gifts you needed to lead this church. And you can command and you can step up with authority, and you can teach, because it's not about you. You are to preach God's word, and you're to rest in the fact that he's called you, and he's given you what you need. And so, at some point in the past, Timothy nailed down 
the local elders placed their hands upon him, and God supernaturally imparted to him what he needed for ministry. We learn more about this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, For this reason I remind you, Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul was there, the elders were there, laying their hands on Timothy. So fan this in flame. You know what that tells me? That tells me that somebody can have the gift, the ability to do what God has called them to do, yet it lays dormant, it's unuseful, because you're not asking God or trusting God to use it in the way that he wants to. And so the picture here is fan into flame. you got this small little ember, and you need to fan it into a large fire. And the same is true for each one of us, as we know those who went through our membership class in the last few years, and you kind of took a spiritual gifts inventory test, if you haven't done that, if you haven't joined the church like Drew and Katie, I encourage you in January to go through the Intro to Grace and the membership class. But in that, we talk a lot about spiritual gifts. And in that opportunity, you learn a little bit what your spiritual gifts might be. And the main thing we say, get out there and do ministry. And probably you'll learn the best when you're actually out there doing ministry, what you're gifted at and what you're not gifted at. But you fan those things into flame by using them and not just letting them set. Because why? Not so you could be Christian 2.0, but so you can impact others and make a difference in their discipleship, in their salvation for the gospel of Christ. The body needs you using your gifts. And then verse 15, he says, practice these things. Put them into practice. Immerse yourself in them. He's saying, live and breathe them. Let it be everything about you so that all may see your progress. If you fan these gifts into flame, and you let them really, really work, and you teach the Word with authority, people are going to see your progress. They're going to see what you're doing for the kingdom. And I love that, because that's a question we rarely ask anybody in our life. How do you see me making progress toward Christ-likeness? I dare you today to ask your spouse that question. How do you see me making progress toward Christ-likeness? We do fight club here, guys, some ladies meet together, and um, we call it fight club just because it is a battle, every day is a battle, it's a war we're in, and we meet together and we talk about real life issues, and most importantly, are we progressing in holiness and in Christ-likeness, in love of His Word, are we growing? And it's naturally built into these little communities that we talk about this stuff. You need that. You need people who are going to speak into your life and talk to you about the most important thing, which is growing in holiness and in Christ-likeness. And so the same for Timothy. He says, people are going to see when you put this into practice. And then he says in verse 16, he tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Timothy, be careful what you do. Be careful what you say. Speak the word. In the King James, it says the very oracles, in one passage, the very oracles of God, the very words of God that you're speaking, you're preaching those. Watch yourself closely. And look what he says, why this is so important. He says, verse 16, persist in this, for by do so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, watch yourself. If you follow through on these things, you'll save both yourself and those who listen. 
What's he talking about there? Paul taught again and again, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago in a, in a passage similar to this, that salvation comes only through God's sovereign mercy and grace. Salvation is not about us. We can't save ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is not by our works, lest anyone should boast about it, lest we should be proud about it. The gospel is the opposite. Of that. It's not what I can do. It's what Jesus did for me. This is not work salvation here. But Paul's point is that those who persevere in life and doctrine will persevere in salvation. If you persevere in life and doctrine, you're persevering in salvation. The Bible creates this tension over and over again. Many scriptures warn people who claim to be Jesus followers that God will not finally save you if you do not persevere in faith and good works. Plain and simple. Scripture warns again and again, examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. Those are there for a reason. Because many people, Scripture says, come in among you, can say the right things, look the right way, but the truth is they don't have a regenerated heart, a changed heart. Jesus has not changed them at the core of who they are, has not created a new man, a new person in them. But yet they're very capable of putting on a show. And it's not our job to be the one who walks around and says, you're in, you're not. That's not our job, all right? But we should examine ourselves and know that as we persevere, and we all know people who have totally abandoned the faith and abandoned the church, proving themselves never to be a follower of Jesus truly in the first place. Because on the other hand, the Bible comforts us again and again as Jesus followers that God preserves all genuine Christians as eternally secure and all genuine Christians do continue in their faith ultimately. They live in, those who live in consistent uncertainty about the outcome of their internal destiny don't have to live that way. We don't have to begin to always sit around like, oh, am I a believer? Am I, am I really saved? As God works in our lives and our very desire, and oftentimes the very reason we're worrying about those things points us to the fact that it is genuine. We wouldn't be worried about that. It's grace that comes into your life and says, examine yourself. And I think of verses like 2 Timothy 1.12 where he says, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded. He says, I'm sure that he, God, is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. But this is not just going through motions and it's not just just, I don't have to pursue holiness. I can live whatever way I want because I got eternal security, right? God saved me, once saved, always saved. So now that's done, check. I, I, now I can just live my life whatever way I want to live and indulge whatever way I want to live my life and indulge in these sins. That's crazy, and there's no truth in Scripture found that way. It says that if you've been changed, if you're a new man, if you've been removed from the kingdom of darkness and given and put in the kingdom of light, if you're a new man in Christ, a new creation in Christ, Old things are passed away, all are become new, and all of a sudden, your desires, your heart changes, and you begin to want to pursue Jesus Christ. And if you have any questions about this, go to 2 Peter chapter 1 today and read the first about 11 or 16 verses there, where he talks about how that those who make a profession of faith, but they never do anything to grow and mature in their faith, they're not caring about reading the Bible and being in God's presence and, and uh, being around God's people, that if you're not adding to your salvation, he says, it, you forget that you've been, even been redeemed in the first place. There's this, this 
ambiguity, this uncertainty about your salvation, which is a good thing, which causes you to run to the cross and say, it's not about me. It's about what Jesus did for me. And so perseverance always follows true conversion. We should want to be holy as God is holy. We should want to know God better. And it's not perfect. Sometimes perseverance looks like Jonah sinning and being disciplined as God disciplines all his children and wrestling with God over the, things that are go- the way things are going. But always, in the end, perseverance looks like holding fast to God, refusing to let go because he doesn't let go of us, no matter how crazy and hard life gets, no matter how far away God feels at the moment. We persevere. And so he tells Timothy in his pep talk, he says, Timothy, command and teach. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Be an example. And he lays out the examples. And he says, preach the word with authority. Hold to the word. Let God speak through you. Remember the gift that's been given to you. It's not about you, Timothy. It's about what God does through you. And your perseverance, your stick to if that's a word, staying with it, staying with the truth, preaching the word, being holy, pursuing Jesus. That's proof that you're truly who you say you are. You're a child of the king. And he says, those who hear you will also be saved because what you possess, you're passing on to them. So application. Head, we're in a spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war. And it's easy to forget that on the day-to-day basis of going through our lives. It's easy to forget, as Ephesians talks about, we don't war against flesh and blood, but we war against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness. And that seems crazy. It's like, well, that's, that's just not the reality that I see every day. That's where we say God's word is true, and the way I feel can't be trusted. There's a spiritual battle going on. It's not peacetime. It's war. And as a result of that, we take what Paul gave Timothy, to our hearts and leaders as we talk about voting on you in a few weeks, you realize the seriousness of your office as somebody people look to in this church to be an example in speech and life and love and faith and purity and those who are leaders and pastors. And then our heart. God has new mercies to pour out every day through Jesus. And so we go daily to him for the mercies that we need for that day. We humble ourselves before him and say, I can't live for you today unless you live through me. I need your grace today because I'm not naturally a person of grace. And the flesh can easily trip me up and sin can easily, easily pull me in a direction I don't want to go. And I admit that. And I need your mercies. And I'm encourage you, it is Thanksgiving week, and we're doing the thankful tree. We talked a lot about that, but I encourage you this week sometime to truly write down God's mercies in your life. Because when we notice God's mercy, what happens? We become joyful, we become thankful. And when we become joyful and thankful, we bring glory to God. We become people who reveal Him to the world that we live in. Instead of being grumpy, discouraged, and always being a downer to everyone, all of a sudden the joy of the Lord is flowing through us. 
And we thank God first and foremost for Jesus, but for all the good things that he brings into our life. Let's do that this week. Spiritual war. God gives you what you need. Let's write those down. Think about those things. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we, myself included, humble ourselves to know that we don't have what it takes to live this life without you. God, we are incapable of making not only a difference in other people's spiritual lives, but we can't even do anything good in ourselves without you working through us. And God, I pray you'll help us to see that that's not an excuse not to be active, not to pursue righteousness and holiness, but we want to pursue through the strength that you give, through the power that you give. I pray for the leaders whose names are on the bulletin today, those who are new, those who are re-upping from serving in the last three years or more. God, I pray that you'll remind us as, as the leaders of this church that we are to set an example and that we truly can't pass on what we don't possess. And help us to start with our families first, God. Help us to be bold and courageous. God, help us to admit the wrongs that we've done in the past and the weaknesses that we've shown in the past and quickly admit the excuses we've made for not leading. And God, help us to start fresh and anew today, pulling from your mercies so that we can celebrate your mercies and have the joy in our homes and our lives that you've called us to live by. God, we need you. We love you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.